this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Ricardo Wilson about his poem, Negrescence, which appeared in issue 21 of The Common. Ricardo Wilson is an assistant professor of English at Williams College and the author of An Apparent Horizon and Other Stories and The Negrescent Beyond, Mexico, the United States, and the Psychic Vanishing of Blackness. His fiction and critical writing can be found in 3AM Magazine, Black Renaissance, Renaissance Noir, Callaloo, CR, The New Centennial Review, Crazy Horse, and Stirring. He is director of Outpost, a residency for creative writers of color from the United States and Latin America. Ricardo Wilson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. We always like to begin by setting the scene. So would you tell us where you're calling from and and describe a little about what it's like there? So I am in my office at Williams College, which is slightly a remarkable thing in that I started last year here, um, but yet didn't move into my office until this past summer. Um, It is sunny outside. My office remains a mess as I am still uh, (laughs) lugging in books every time I come here to put them up here. So the podcast format actually works out quite nice. Um, But I live in Bennington um, where my wife works. um, And so it's actually been nice not only getting back in person with faces, um, but strangely, as a native of Los Angeles, uh, the commute has been welcome. So. Yeah, I do actually understand that. There's like a nice unpacking mentally that can be done during a commute. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like about an hour, hour and 15 of my day where I could just zone out and listen to music and yeah, put it all together. Absolutely. Would you start us off by reading your poem from issue 21? Absolutely. So Negrescence. She is on her knees in the garden. The sun, as of yesterday, an hour early. There are no dead snails in the saucers of beer, though she has finally seen the pale yellow cabbage butterfly. Searching the half-eaten mustards and turnips, she looks for the caterpillars and their eggs as if she were inspecting a child for lice. Extracts the first, hidden, hiding along the stem of the most mature start, studying its curl on her finger for breath, perhaps peering its translucence to judge it female before she presses. Leaf by leaf, plant by plant, until her fingertips are dirty with the mess. A car has downshifted to work its way up the private road below. She raises on her knees, wipes the mulch-stained sweat from her temple with the knuckle of her thumb. She may have seen the leather he keeps on his wrist, 
In any case, she had seen enough to trot the steps to the kitchen door without exhale, to wash the stick from her hands at the utility sink. Thanks for reading that. Would you tell us a little bit about choosing the title and maybe what that term negrescence means, just for those of us who may not be familiar? Yeah, well, so negrescence kind of refers to the process of becoming becoming black or becoming dark, right? Um, and as we probably will get into a little bit later, um, this piece is part of a larger um, a larger story, and so it follows two characters that have an intimate relationship, but nonetheless maintain kind of aspects of their lives or very large kind of structuring aspects of their lives. Um, that are dark to the other. And this is where that kind of plays in here. Okay, perfect. Um, could you tell us more just about writing this poem, this piece of the, of the larger project you mentioned? What, what inspired this specifically? I mean, <clears throat> it, interestingly, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm teaching a short story class now. Um, and it's, it's funny when some of these questions get pointed right back at you <laughs> in, terms of, <laughs> in terms of inspiration. Um, I don't necessarily approach, uh, this comes from a novella. Um, I don't necessarily approach every story the same way. Um, and this particular one, um, it was actually this fragment that came first and not to give too much away, but this comes towards, towards the very end. Um, mm -hmm. so in a lot of senses, this was kind of what I was moving toward throughout. Um, so I, I had a, a brief picture in my head, um, of this particular scene, um, of, of my character in the garden, looking at the private road below as, as this other character who we spent quite a bit of time with comes up. Um, and so this is this is what inspired not just the, the the poem, but inspired you know as I was as I had the character sketches in mind, um, this this connection, this moment that's being kind of referred to in in in, the, in this poem, um, is what I was actually writing toward, which was kind of fun. Yeah, that that, that sounds really interesting to write like that. There's such a nice, uh, like almost like a soft bucolic type of feel to this poem, you know, with the woman gardening, but there's, it also feels kind of haunting and maybe threatening as well. There's sort of this, the goriness of her squishing these caterpillars in her fingers. And then there's some kind of threat that we feel from the car coming up the hill, like a reason that she needs to hurry off. Can you talk about including both sort of both of those aspects and emotions in these poems? Do they have to balance each other? Absolutely. Um, I, I think to talk about the larger story, um, you know, it follows an environmental activist um, after a failed hunger strike in the California desert. Um, and a big kind of plays a medit meditating point or point of meditation for me um, in the development of, of their character in this particular fragment is that though they've like had to isolate them, um, um, you know, that isolation wasn't wasn't purely kind of out of benevolence, right? There's uh, some violence in their own lives, right? So there's some there's some um, crisis in their own particular lives that can't be divorced. And so for me, as I was thinking about this particular scene, it was very important um, to kind of understand where violent or colonizing gestures, for lack of a better phrase, mm -hmm. um, exist even in the most benevolent or seemingly benevolent of places, right? And so this is kind of all packed in. Um, to this, this very short, short, short poem. That's, that's really interesting. I guess we should get into this book. <laughs> so your, your book just came out from, from Pank Books, where yes. it won the Pank Book Contest in Fiction. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I was, of course, thinking of you as a poet since we published a poem of yours, and so that's how I was sort of seeing it. But, but you're clearly not just writing poetry. Um, what, what can you tell us about this collection? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's funny. I, uh, 
I am still uncomfortable with the fact that poetry exists in the world with my name on it. Um, <laughs> but beyond the comment, I have another piece that's act, that's actually a standalone piece from the that introduces the collection um, that that was that was out in Crazy Horse. I think around the same time as 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 the common one. But this for me, I mean, it's a collection of stories. Um, there are two standalone pieces of prose poetry. Uh, fragments, microfiction, kind of depending on how you choose to kind of come to it to read it, but that structure that introduce and then kind of break break the work. Um, but beyond that, um, and especially towards the stories at the end, um, we see a recurrence of these fragments um, that begin to kind of po- populate it. And so, you know, the first, the first story, it's a, you know, the first story I wrote um, was set during the construction of the Panama Canal, um, follows a man who was a digger, uh, but learned the trade of a jeweler. Um, and as, as I've said in, in, in other, you know, it's, a, it's a bit of a traditional kind of counter narrative. And it's the one that I wrote first. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for me at that moment, so much of the West Indian experience um, was absent in the collective memory of kind of the NMRIs at the Isthmus in Panama um, that to this day continues to kind of structure much of the economic stability that we um, fortunately kind of sit on or unfortunately, depending on your perspective. And so um, that was felt very comfortable right, within the genre of counter narrative. But as I developed the collection, I became much more invested um, um, in, 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 in breaking that down. And these, these poems fragments, again, what, what, you know, were, were a very helpful tool um, in, in pointing to the reader uh, towards this kind of fragmentation of an archive, right? The, the kind of unreadability of an archive, which goes back to this notion of negrescence, right? This not only in the, you know, I spoke of it in relationship to the characters, um, you know, in terms of being dark to each other, but, you know, the, the, the archives um, on which we stand are, are in many ways like dark to us. Um, and, and that's certainly an emphasis for me. That's really interesting. So how much there there's more than just two of these poetic fragments in the book. There's, there's a, a few, there's a, there's a, there's a large handful. So, I mean, there, oh, okay. there, there are two novellas that structure the, the book, you know, the, the, um, the death of Sam Brown, which is the one that focuses on Panama and an apparent horizon, which titles the collection, which comes at the end. And Negrescence is actually the end of that particular novella. Um, mm-hmm. But there are, there's another piece, the deaf men um, that's probably the most experimental. And I would say within the deaf men, um, and, and, and apparent horizon, you have fragments are very much a tool, um, throughout. So that's really, really interesting. So it sounds like you you have like a historical narrative and then like a a slightly more contemporary narrative. So I'm assuming you did a lot of research (laughs) to write the the historical narrative. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Do you have any like advice or things you learned that writers should do or not do if they're writing historical fiction? I mean, having a bad memory, I think is a, <laughs> is a, is a great thing. I mean, I think you kind of have to, for me, I don't speak to, to anyone else, but for me, I think it was really helpful to kind of immerse myself. Um, you know, I'll talk specifically about Panama, which came first. Um, you know, I actually had the opportunity, um, to live there for a bit. My, my family comes from there. So this was like a very personal mm-hmm. story. Um, but, you know, doing traditional archival research as well, I was able to get, you know, my hands on tons of letters written from canal workers at the time. And I just read and read and read and read and read and just, you know, surrounded myself by it and then was able to kind of not forget that. But I just that put me in the, kind of the zone. And then I kind of gave my 
myself liberty to roll from there. And so in terms of advice for a reader or a writer would be the same for, for any story, really. I think the most important thing is to kind of um, interrogate what you're drawn to there, right? Um, and kind of return to and develop that answer kind of with as much nuance as possible. Um, you know, cause in this context, there's so many angles I could have taken with that particular story. Um, but without that focus, you know, and again, this had so much to do with this notion of unsettling the archive for me. Um, I would have been a bit rudderless. Um, and you know, as I, the other stories that have historical elements, you know, throughout, um, that I wrote after that, I think that was very, very much helpful for me to kind of like free me up to say, hey, in this piece, it's I, I don't need to kind of background all that. That's that's in fact not what I'm interested in, right? And mm-hmm. so that this this really being able to kind of quickly boil down um, your own inclinations, I think, is is really really helpful for me. Um, and if it's helpful for others, then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I think that's good advice. I um I yeah, I've been writing some historical fiction too, and I I think. If you take too, if your notes are too good, you take too many notes, then you end up trying to put all of that stuff into it, and it's it's no good. <laughs> well, I mean, they have the, you know, like, again, whether it's like the the iceberg analogy in fiction, right, and so much below the water, or this notion of like killing your darlings. I, I think, in a lot of senses, um, the research process for historical fiction can make letting go of those things even harder for some writers. Um, you know, because not only is it like stuff that you were drawn to, but also like, you know, you feel like that there's some like realness here or something. Right. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think figuring out what your story is, is super important to allow you to kind of figure out what needs to be sanded down and or straight, just removed. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to read a little bit more. Can yeah. you inter- introduce this next poetic fragment and then, and then read it for us? Yeah, so this is a poetic fragment from the same um, story in Apparent Horizon and other stories. This one focuses on um, the male character who was coming up uh, the private road in the in the first one. When I sent this out as a standalone piece, um, it was titled 3391 Elswen, um, which is a reference to the, the date of the Rodney King beating in, in my hometown of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, So here we go. In the center lane of Interstate 210 toward the Lopez Canyon landfill, he, perhaps also enraptured beneath the majestically barren San Gabriels, misses the Paxton Street exit and must continue to Osborne and double back along Foothill Boulevard. He looks away from that segment of street, up and to his left, to the ridge, beyond which he can imagine the park where his father would take him and his brother's children to play a little ball, the few times a year they made it out this way for compost. Thanks so much for reading that. Yeah. So I think when you mentioned this, you mentioned that um, this driver in, in this fragment is following the route of Rodney King's drive. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, and you'll, you know, for, for anyone that, that reads the book, there's actually a notes section, um, which, which makes note of that, right? Um, it comes after the book. There's no note within the text itself that, that lets right, the reader right. know, but if they make it to the end, um, and everything is not noted in the collection. So certainly it produces a bit of anxiety as one may read past this the first time and not necessarily catching this. But yeah, absolutely. He is following the exact route um, of King. Um, and I think in connection to what we were just talking about in terms of my overall project about unsettling an archive, creating some kind of um, um, productively antagonistic space. I mean, this for me... 
Um, there's language taken from the trial of Barney King that's in here. You know, this notion of playing a little ball that was kind of, you know, in the testimony in relationship to the police officers, this notion of up and to his left comes, you know, up, you know in terms of, in terms of uh, the trial language describing, um, you know, the threat of Rodney King's body. And we, obviously we have um, the very physical locations as well throughout, but reading this through the first time, you know, I mean, one is not going to get that at all. And that's sure. very much the point. Um, that it works in both ways. It both structures the ground we walk on, and yet there's like a, an absolute um, 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 lack of understanding of, in, of that which structures what we walk on. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. That's really interesting. You're, you're really taking me back to my grad school days. It's been so long <laughs> since I thought about stuff like this, but I remember, you know, um, reading. I'll take re- that as a compliment. <laughs> yes, no, it is. It is. Uh, I need that. Um, I remember reading a lot of, you know, T.S. Eliot's long, yep. long poems and you know, the teacher's trying to explain to us about fragments and how, yeah, how unsettling it is to feel like there's like definitely some subtext here, but you're missing it. And then once you know more about what, what's being referred to or what's being, you know, brought in, it creates this whole other text. There's, there's like almost like there's two two ways to read it and two, two textual experiences that you can have. You know, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, um, John Keane, who I was fortunate enough to have um, talk about my work on the on the book jacket, um, and his his work of counter narratives remains one of the more important works um, to me. But I just love um, how his work forces rereadings. Um, and for me, I'm not going to speak for all readers in ways that are not you know like that are that are kind of enriching, kind of both times or multiple times. Um, and that's certainly certain some, certainly something that I've I've um, borrowed. Um, is there anything you can tell us about the publishing process? I'm just, you know, I'm hopefully starting off on publishing a book myself, but I'm really curious about Pank and, and what it's been like working with them on the book. Um, it, I mean, it's it's great. I mean, this is, the, you know, this is uh, a smaller press. It's mm-hmm. an award. And so they had a, a slightly shorter turnaround in terms of, in, you know, in terms of with the traditional press, which for me worked right. out um, great. But I mean, you know, much like any writer who gets um, a story published, um, you know, when, you know, I got the the email from, from y'all at the comment, I mean, it's just a beautiful experience when people kind of get where you're going. And I'll say, you know, the, the previous judge, Melissa Ragsley, and also um, Chris, one of the editors at, at, at the press, um, you know, when you're, when you're able to kind of chop it up with people that understand where you're trying to go, um, you kind of know you found the right home in that regard. Oh, good. <laughs> um, and that's, and that's a, and that's a, and that's a great thing. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I um, you know, t- going back to like advice one gives writers or what, you know, I try to impart in my fiction classes and, and stuff is just, you know, they're human beings on the other side of this. Um, and so <laughs> you'll land in the right place. Right. And you want to land in a place where people really understand um, um, the project you're attempting. Um, it makes the editing process easier. It makes everything very, very much easier. Mm. Yeah, that's a nice way to think of it. I feel like, uh, you know, as someone who writes and someone who edits, I feel like there's a lot of bad feeling around like, you know, gatekeeping and who says yes to things and who says no to things. And um, 
you know, it can create this adversarial relationship between writers and the people selecting the work. And um, yeah, and I, t- I totally you're right. I get it. But yeah, I get it. And <laughs> at the same hand, I mean, I think we can we right. can have that critical approach. But I also think Absolutely. like to read generously um, as well the human beings on the other side. But also like mm-hmm. you know, and Pink's an example of this. Um, you know, I you know, I've been you know, th- this moment um, is filled with a lot of extraordinary young um, presses who are doing fantastic work that didn't exist 15 years ago, Um, you know, and the means of production are a lot more under control. And so there's, you know, there are opportunities here um, for, um, for experimental voices for, you know, again, for, Mm -hmm. for someone, you know, and, and Chris, and obviously Melissa and Jessica, the folks at the press, you know, were drawn to and didn't like sneeze at the fact of like, wait, like you start off with a, what might be considered a prose poem. And then you move into a short story that then goes to a novella, like what the F is going on here. It's like, no, no, no. Like we like are, are here for it. Um, I think there's, there's more possibility for that. Um, now, I mean, I think we have to obviously always be vigilant and always push the mm-hmm. industry, but certainly there's more possibility for that. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think if, if, if I'm an optimist, I think I'm an optimist. I would say that, that they're, they're sort of pulling, pulling the mainstream a little more in that, direction every year you know i think that um yeah the more the smaller presses are are interested in and publishing things like that the more we start to see them as being you know acceptable ways of doing it like a non non linear narrative you know all these things have become so acceptable in the last couple years that used to be considered experimental and i feel like yeah the broader we can be in our definition of of what we're interested in reading the better and the, be- the beautiful thing, if I can belabor that point a little bit, is that like, you know, and stuff is forthcoming in terms of, you know, I mean, I appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk, but, you know, like um, the more the work is discussed, um, you know, in the same kind of like uh, news channels or channel, you know, m- media channels um, as as works from, from other larger presses, um, that's where a lot of that pushing happens right um and i think you know i think there's a nimbleness that small presses have literary journals have and now in this world where like content creation um you know is 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 so much easier in in some in some contexts i mean there's there's a real opportunity for the work of the common to kind of dictate um or at least introduce new thoughts and energy to a stream that was i think probably a little bit harder before yeah, I think and that's like, true. I think I'm an optimist, but like, similarly, <laughs> yeah, I hope you're yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've also published an academic book with Northwestern University Press. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about that? And I'm, I'm also just curious to hear like how different that process is than than publishing non-academic work. Um, well, okay. The, in terms of the process, I would say like <laughs> the editing process a lot longer. Um, mm-hmm. But part of that was, I think, you know, Northwestern established uh, university press, Pank, smaller independent press, where I think mm-hmm. the author has a bit more freedom. So there, there, there's that. Um, but I mean, I, I, I loved it. I mean, for me, I, I would include teaching here. Like um, there's not, a, there's, I approach things, I approach the writing obviously very differently, um, but I tend to write academic and creative text um, and also teach in tandem. And, and what I mean by that is that like, you know, within a given years I'm working on, you know, my teaching practice, um, my creative work and my academic work, they're all kind of informing each other. Um, Mm -hmm. and it allows me, um, you know, I'm in an amazing space, right. Where where it allows me to really just kind of 
meditate on the same ideas and continually revisit them. In the classroom, I get to revisit them with incredibly bright students who are pushing me and making me think about things in a different way. Um, and then, you know, the refining that happens in an academic book project is obviously quite different, but it, it helps a ton. I mean, point, um, point of fact, the book, The Negrescent Beyond, it deals with Mexico primarily um, and looks at its relationship to um, its Black past and how it kind of made that invisible within its collective conscious. And I felt like that that study had something to give Black studies in the United States in relationship to the moment of post-raciality that we were passing through when I first started the project. But even mm-hmm. now, um, you know, I think too often in Black studies, you have uh, the U.S. kind of dictating or reading Blackness throughout the hemisphere. And I thought this was a really beautiful opportunity for for the experience of Mexico to kind of teach and speak back um, in relationship to us. But I mean, we can have a whole nother podcast in relationship to that book, um, but this notion of negrescence, I mean, it's in the title, comes from there, um, you know, and an apparent horizon, which is the, the, the novel, the novella that titles my collection comes from um, that book. I mean, it comes from a notion that, the, that Stephen Hawking advanced towards the end of his life when he was rethinking um, black holes and the boundaries of black holes. Um, and he revised his original idea of the event horizon, that being that, you know, all information that falls into a black hole disappears, but instead replaced it with an apparent horizon in some cases, right? Where information can pass through these boundaries. And in the case of my academic work, I was thinking as, as this of a certain kind of boundary of a, of a collective unconscious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the information that passes through is just so chaotically deformed that it is unreadable, right? And so that's what's going on as I'm thinking through that in a critical sense in my work, but that's to get to where we started and why, you know, the piece that the comments selected, um, that becomes really helpful as I begin to experiment with fragments, right? Um, Kind of like readable, unreadable fragments that are kind of like appearing um, and pointing to these particular poignant moments um, that are necessary as far as structuring the world they live in, but at the same time unreadable. And so that's, I mean, just an example of how mm-hmm. all of that kind of takes place for me um, mm-hmm. in the same space. And it's not, it's not rare at all. I mean, I think of like um, um, the folks I read in grad school, whether you want to think about um, Fuentes or Paz or even Marilyn Robinson or Jam Cote. I mean, there, there are a lot of folks who have mm-hmm. kind of felt very comfortable um, in both spaces um, and talked about it, I think, in similar ways. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I think in, in the world we live in where so many of our writers are also teachers, it's, you know, mm-hmm. I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, does it feel like the same muscle when you're writing creatively or writing academically? Or is it like, a it, like no. are the processes different? Do you approach them differently? Um, yeah, I mean, I, the, 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 the discipline is the same, right? I mean, which I think is helpful. I mean, that's a, that's a helpful muscle to like always maintain, right? This like returning to the page, feeling comfortable with just with not knowing with discomfort and, you know, and, and, um, you know, a consistent boiling down of the idea, you know, all of that kind of stays the same, but no, I mean, it's a very, very, very different muscle. Um, you know, for me, uh, I could, be working for three straight months on an academic project. Um, and then if I have the time and space to begin, um, you know, to think about the creative project that, that I'm working on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's that same, like, 
shit like you know first <laughs> uh you know just like i you know that that muscle feels like it hasn't been moved in a lot of in a lot of senses right. so um which which again i think that sometimes that can be a good thing um to to to, to have that or a lack of familiarity um um can kind of be helpful as you push through it but yeah I, I would say the discipline helps um um but for me i think uh the discipline and the ideas that i'm thinking about and so for me it's always important that i'm that i'm meditating on projects that complement each other so that when there are those periods where I need to go in a hole and worry about one and not the other, um, that at least from an, an idea perspective, I'm, I'm continuing to develop that. Yeah, that definitely sounds like the ideal scenario that like that the two things would be sort of symbiotic in some way. Yeah. Um, I think people often ask me yeah. like, oh, is it different when you're writing versus editing? Like, are those different things? And I think yeah, in a perfect world, there's some sort of conversation going on be between both sides of it. And the only thing I find difficult, and I don't know if this, if you relate to this or not, but I feel like possibly when you write academically or when I'm editing, like there, there's a lot of a very critical brain that you bring bring to that kind of work. Um, and sometimes I think when you're writing creatively, at least the first draft, you have to like try to shut the creative, the the critical part off a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I agree a hundred percent, but you know, like I said with the, I think there's some practice with that, even in my, I, that's obviously something that I'm drawn to for some reason um, <laughs> um, and relatively good at, right? Like this notion of like for the historical uh, uh, fiction that you were asking about, right? Mm -hmm. To both do research and forget it at the same time <laughs> right. um, to think critically and then just like, let that just like be in your spirit and like not, you know, overthink anything is also a skill that I think, over the years of having to do or wanting to do both at the same time. Um, but ab absolutely. So you're actually, now that we're talking about teaching, you're going to be teaching the most recent issue of the common in your classroom this fall. Um, what are you most excited about teaching? Is this the first time you've done a magazine in your classroom? Um, I'll say kind of, I think the answer <laughs> to the first time, um, and all I have to say is the institution I was at before this, um, was uh, Washington and the university, uh, as in Robert E. Lee, as in his dead body was on our campus, and I passed it every day. Um, uh, and in a bit of funny, like there's as one of the stories in the in the collection, Cracker Ass Sucker Fool, actually comes out of that experience, um, which I would highly recommend. Uh, but with that said, as you know, at WNL, there's a very um, prestigious and great journal in Shenandoah um, on our campus, um, and in the span of my working there, uh, we got a new editor who was fantastic. Um, and so the journal itself made its way in um, to the creative writing classes I was teaching. And certainly if I would have continued on there, I think I would have made that, um, 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 you know, I think a more of a firm marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and so when the opportunity to teach creative writing here came up, um, combined with the craziness of the virtual term virtual year last year i was like oh this is a great opportunity um to to be able to bring bring the common in and in fact i reached out to you before i even knew that you had a program oh, really <laughs> <laughs> developed in that so which was fantastic um but no i'm really really excited i mean i think for me what it does is it i, I mentioned this before uh, but it really works to demystify the process and I, for, 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 for students, um, you know, again, to be able to meet an editor, um, talk through, um, their approach to a piece, um, talk through the shaping of the journal. And I think that, I mean, and I think too, too
too many young writers um, don't have the time or are less interested or don't really un- understand um, um, the value in evaluating the journal itself, you know, and that, you know, no matter how many, um, you know, blurbs you get as you submit things on Submittable that say, oh, no, please buy our journal, check it out, make sure it's a right fit. Um, and to be able to do that in the course of a class and really, because in this context, we're going to be reading from this issue um, over a month before um, the editor comes in. Um, and I, I'm really excited for that, right? To, to, to get them to understand, you know, again, to demystify the process, the submission process, what, it, what the human being on the other end looks like um, and how they go about their business. I think this will be, I'm, I'm, I'm super looking forward to it. Um, That's great. I wasn't sure if you were teaching it in a in an English class or in a um, creative writing class, but that yeah, that sounds really great. Um, in a, in so, a creative writing class, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm thinking about one of our student interns who who worked for us said that um, when she heard about the common on campus, she didn't even know that you could submit to LitMag. She didn't know that was like still a thing. <laughs> Which is just, you know, it's so surprising to me, but I think you're right that it's a really good way to sort of demystify, you know, writing as a sort of highbrow pursuit and can be this thing that, you know, actually leads somewhere and this is where it leads and these are the steps and this is the work you have to do. Yeah. And to help it out. I mean, and like the common just looks beautiful, right? So (laughs) like they'll get, they, you know, they have this kind of hard copy in their hands and, and, um, that's, that's pretty extraordinary. So yeah, great. Um, yeah, I'm very excited. Um, I heard that you have two more students. I just sent the issues out today. <laughs> good, 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 good. Uh, so you're also you're the director of Outpost, which is a residency for creative writers of color from the U.S. and Latin America. Would you tell us more about that, and and maybe tell us where folks should go to learn more about it? So outpostthereresidency.org is the website. Um, applications are open and will close November first. Um, it is both new and old. Um, this has been in my head for a long, long, long time. Um, and you know, it was, it was, I was in many ways waiting, um, for the right moment when I knew that I would be in a physical location that could support it. Um, and in a place in my life where I could devote to it and that has arrived. And so the, so what it is, is it's a month long residency at this point in during the month of September on a 30 acre property, um, in Southern Vermont. Um, it is designed for writers of color from the United States and Latin America. Um, the cohort will be small at first, but with the idea of, of this growing, um, um, a little bit as the years, as the years move on, um, it is travel, food, um, and stipend and with a stipend, right? So this is, you know, a gorgeous residency experience that, you know, oftentimes I don't say always, but oftentimes, um, either comes with a price or if there's some kind of like scholarship comes with like a work exchange. In this case, this is time without expectation and an opportunity mm-hmm. to kind of build, build community. Um, and, and, and yeah, so it's, it's, you know, given my connection to both Williams college and members of the board connection to Bennington college, there's an opportunity, you know, not only for this kind of silent retreat and this opportunity to, to get work done and to kind of fellowship, um, with with writers at various stages of their career, but there are also the opportunities um, to visit Williams and visit Bennington, visit the Frost House, which is in in Bennington. I mean, there, there, there's a lot there's a lot of I mean, as you know, you're from this neck of the woods. There's so much yeah. around here. Um, and again, with the strange gift of the pandemic, which you know made us realize 
all that is possible in a virtual format. There's that as well. But largely, for the most part, this is a month-long paid writing residency. Um, yeah. Where, where, so where time is given, yeah, no, it's it's been it's been it's been fun. The board has been great as as and really receptive and bringing bringing new ideas. So it's it's a it's an again it's something that's been in my head for a long long time, mm-hmm. um, but it's fun to finally be getting to business with it, um, and to be around people who are who are who are equally supportive and rowing in the same direction. Yeah, I'm so glad that exists. I just uh, I did my first residency last year, and I mean, you know, Where it's were just life changing. Um, I went to the Vermont Studio Center, which is up. Oh, this is um, great. Johnson. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is great. We'll have to talk. Yeah, no, I did. Um, I mean, I've done, done a couple of, but I did like Gentile was particularly um, meaningful for me. And it's funny when I tell people, actually, I did it in January. <laughs> yeah, I was up there in February. <laughs> <laughs> Which people are like, are you crazy? I was like, it was amazing. Um, um, except for the night where we all decided to watch The Shining during a snowstorm. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when I was up there, it was basically so cold and so snowy that there was nothing to do but right. <laughs> Yeah. So I got yeah. a lot done. <laughs> yeah, this is good. This is good. Yeah. But, the, we'll you know, this, the access to that community is just, you know, it's really invaluable. And I think that's something that, you know, yeah, a lot of people don't get access to, you know, and to come up here and see those things and meet, meet other people who are doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, I mean, for me, the paid portion of this and, you know, making sure we're dotting our eyes and cross our T's in terms of grant writing and stuff like that to make mm-hmm. that possible. I mean, you know, a stipend, not just, you know, a stipend where if, if you have a job, like it's actually possible for you to take some time off and still take care of stuff. Right. I think, I mean, it's just like that in and of itself is, you know, we value what you're putting into the world, you know, not just come and sit with it. So, so I have one last question, which is okay. what are you working on now? <laughs> <laughs> I won't say I hate answering this question, but no, I'm, I have, um, not surprisingly, I have two projects that are going on um, at the same time. Um, I have a critical project. Uh, that I won't say a ton about, but it's it's dealing with Langston Hughes's translations. Um, some of his time in Mexico, I'm really excited about that. Um, I think it's been, um, you know, I think after my first critical book, um, it was kind of nice to get the acceptance with Pink and 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 really spend that time refining that project over the last couple months to kind of take a break from this. But I'm excited to get into some of, some of the more critical stuff. And then um, I have a. a a novel in progress. Um, I have a title, won't, won't share it, but, uh, um, it really kind of takes as its central, um, meditation, right? I think we're living in a moment and critically, right? Like in, in, in the work of black studies that, that I circle around where this notion of the afterlives of slavery, um, is, you know, present, right? I mean, and, and kind of in, and now we're in, in a pop culture, situation where where people understand what that means where i think you know t- almost 20 years ago when city hartman was first talking through this i think many people did not sadly um but i'm looking at okay if, if we take that um as truth um what do the afterlives of maroonage mean right and so what does it mean to run away in this contemporary context um and so you know again that's that's uh, that's vague which i like being sometimes but um but that's but that's where i'm starting so it's a it's a it's a novel that kind of that's 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 sitting with that question um and is obviously it's quite connected to the stuff i've done before but i'm i'm excited to start on something new okay um those both sound really very interesting uh ricardo wilson thanks so much for joining us it's been really great talking with you this was a pleasure thank you emily 
Listeners, you can read Ricardo's poems and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.